Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Sports. 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 Podcast. I'm Joel Anderson. I'm Jordan Palmaville. And joining us, as always, is the Sports Outsider, Phil Ranta. Social distancing podcast time. Yeah. That's right. We we remain socially distanced. Uh, we, uh, we actually signed on to a letter of protest along with Elon Musk about how we're not being labeled an essential uh, business. In the I would like to say I did not sign that. I want. I would just want that to be known. I did not sign that, and uh, I'm very pleased with the new recording equipment, Phil. Hey, yeah. thank you, thank you. It's uh, it, yeah, we, we're upgrading because all the fans were like, "We want better audio." So here you go, fans. I was surprised. Jordan, normally a huge Elon Musk fan. I know. So right. so so out of character for me to be judgmental of him. Yeah, you usually accept just whatever he says at face value. Oh, oh yeah, by that's... the way, we, we should mention up top, congratulations, Elon Musk, for the birth of A-Ash, uh, 12 Right, and it's, a, and it's a sports comedy podcast, Joel yeah, and I are sports insiders. Mm-hmm. That is what he named his kid, Joel, yes. Oh, my God. No, it's, it's X-Ash, A-12, Musk. Oh, my God. It's a boy. <laughs> is it? Yep, I swear. All right, sorry, I cut you off, Jordan. Oh, I was just trying to explain that it's a sports comedy podcast. Oh, sure. Well, you obviously, the people at home can hear that, Jordan. Uh, and uh, Joel and I are sports insiders. Phil is a sports outsider. This is exciting. We have on to talk about the last dance, a Chicago sports superfan, Buck Knightley. That's great. It must be tough time out there for sports fans right now, so it's good to get his perspective. Yeah, right. A lot of people have been very excited about this ESPN documentary, uh, The Last Dance. So uh, he, he's probably going to have a lot to say about reliving those moments in, in Chicago in the 90s. Uh, I hope so. We got a wide world of weird sports. Goddamn right we do. And a sports throughout history. But first, Sports Update Watch Death Watch. Sports Update Watch Death Watch. Brought to you by... Morton's funeral homes. It comes for all of us. <laughs> Joe Buck says NFL broadcast this fall will feature fake crowd noise and virtual fans. Subheadline: yes. sub Stadium still insisting on announcing paid virtual attendance figures. <laughs> that makes sense. Got to do it for the advertisers. Uh, Joe Buck, one of the biggest names in sports broadcasting and hated by everyone for reasons revealed what football would look like this fall if it happens yeah in in fairness to joe buck he's just okay and i think people resent him for that (laughs) well who did who did joe buck give this big time scoop to sports illustrated's peter king espn's adam schefter Mm -hmm. nfl network's uh ian rapaport nope nope it was it was bravo's andy cohen oh huh Joe Buck was interviewed by Cohen on his Sirius XM show, Radio Andy. And to think, years ago, we were all worried the Sirius XM merger would be bad for consumers. Right? right? Baba booey, baba booey, baba booey. And this is the first <laughs> big, uh, big NFL piece of breaking news from Andy Cohen since he was the first one to say Peyton Manning was going to retire, right? No, but he actually, uh, actually, he did break uh, some Gronk news around the time Gronk was going to come out of retirement. Oh, wow. I know you were joking, Joel. (laughs) No. Basically, this was a joke I repurposed. (laughs) I had taken it out of a Gronk piece. Anyway. After 385 episodes, what do you expect? (laughs) 
Joe Buck said that Fox would be putting crowd noise into broadcast to make it a more normal time, America number one, in this together, support the troops viewing experience. What? That he checks added, off a lot of boxes. He added that, I think whoever's going to be at that control is going to have to be really good at their job and be realistic with how a crowd would react, depending on what just happened on the field. So it's really important. And I agree with him here. There's a lot of different nuanced crowd reactions. Cheering a four-yard run on first down, different than a third and long conversion. The person <laughs> in charge can't be just some morning radio producer with a drop board. <laughs> oh, wait, no, it totally can. <laughs> yeah. it totally, I just talked myself into it. Yeah. yeah. Safety, toilet flush, sack. Arnold Schwarzenegger asking, who is your daddy and what does he do? <laughs> Any, anytime there's a concussion, it's not a tumor. Ooh. <laughs> like turning everything into a meme it's my dream world <laughs> uh can i just say that this this to me sounds like the use of fake laugh tracks on sitcoms well what's not fair about that is on sitcoms they actually they're using recorded laughter from generally taping that occurred <laughs> that day right. this would be yeah. year old crowd noise no but see I'm, I'm talking more like when they did it with sports night oh yeah well oh, that, that was tough. like not yeah. for a live studio audience where you're like, this normally is an important part of this experience, but now that you've presented it to me in this way, it's not at all. Like, it's wrong. It feels Well, wrong. Sports Night, it only happened like four times an episode, which is super weird. <laughs> yeah, that didn't help. It was but only even, the first season, right? They got yeah. rid of it one season. Oh, they got rid of it. Yeah, it was but terrible. Even, you can tell the difference between, like, the good sitcoms where they clearly have competent professionals performing comedy in front of a live audience and that's mostly what they're putting in the laugh track. And the ones where they clearly are just sort of like, yeah, we'll Frankenstein together our audio here because they, they, uh, they didn't actually have good people. Okay, Joel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for veering it into uh, sitcom territory, but I, I want to talk about sports. Oh, and, uh, well, yeah. when have uh, we ever done that before? I mean, will we get booing on like a borderline call that goes against the home team? Oh, are we gonna, be fun. like how how realistic are we getting? Are we going to hear team specific chants? You know, will there be oh, yeah. sizable cheers from Bears or Packers fans who would normally have a large contingent of fans at a meaningless late season home game for the Lions? Yeah, I mean, sooner or later, the sports writers are going to buck because they're going to have to be like, where are the offensive cheers that we would normally be writing an article about? <laughs> for well, here's my pitch NFL for this. To manufacture one. <laughs> What they should do is use the polls feature on Twitter for everybody as a crowd to be able to vote for what sound should be coming out. And then it would be like a hyper-realistic way of getting out all the audience feedback, right? I yeah. love that idea. Also, what if, what if we experimented with, like, maybe the entire crowd of people watching this time are lions. <laughs> so they're, like, roaring when things are good. Well, see, that's where I think it gets weird, is the CGI fans in the stands. Fox yeah. said it will add virtual fans, so when you see, uh, Buck said the Fox will add virtual fans, so when you see a wide shot, it looks like the stadium is jam-packed, and in fact, it'll be empty. Now, this seems like the trickiest part, but don't worry about the guy in charge. Once just an entry-level employee who complained it was impossible to see a hockey puck on television, he's now the <laughs> EVP of graphics. <laughs> Sounds right. And, and yeah. ESPN's got a leg up here because Monday Night Football hasn't been able to settle on an announcing booth that people like 
since taking over the broadcast from ABC in 2006. Yeah, well, they that, really, But they that'll really, hardly matter if they got Pixar working on that shit. <laughs> oh, man, could you imagine just a bunch of Woody's and Buzz Lightyear's watching a Lions game? If it's Buzz a boring, and Woody are calling it. <laughs> if it's a boring game in the third quarter and announcers are about to start talking about whatever they feel like, it's time for an animated short. Maybe about an anthropomorphized homemade sign that gets separated from the young child who created it when a security guard shows him on a sign that it's too large. The sign oh. must navigate its way through the obstacles of a stadium concourse to get back to its owner, hopefully just in time for the child's favorite player, the one he made the sign for, to score a touchdown and see him holding it in the stands. Boom. That Oscar. sounds heartwarming and incredible. When can I watch this, Jordan? Well, at the very least, we'll be able to accurately render uh, Las Vegas Raiders fans as what they are, characters in the Star Wars cantina. <laughs> Perfect. And since half of them are from New York, it'll be fun to see which Marvel's characters are Giants fans and which ones drew the short stick. <laughs> oh, talk about Civil War. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. fans. You um, know what I'm looking forward to is hearing the haunting beauty of an NFL game being watched entirely by a crowd of 40,000 humpback whales. Well, and I think it's, you got to think about promoting the known quantities, Joel. Yeah. I mean, instead of Paul Reiser waving from his seat as Joe Buck does a live read to promote his new sitcom, could we see a digitally created Paul Reiser? What? CGIzer? <laughs> Sports update, watch Death Watch. Sports update, watch Death Watch. Brought to you by Martin's Funeral Home. We have a waiting list. And now it's time for another sports throughout history. Bom, 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 bom. Brought to you by the History Channel. We already ran out of history. <laughs> yeah that's that's gonna be a real problem you're joking but on amazon prime right now i've really burned through most of the bad documentaries that i have any <laughs> desire to watch so. oh yeah no that drop was the most accurate drop that's ever been on the show they're they're yeah. they're like well, let's talk about uh this one burlesque dancer in the 1920s and you're like ugh. actually I'd, I'd be into that I know you would. I don't know much about the history of burlesque. I'm sure there's some some vaudeville in there. But I'd love to learn. It's interesting oh, that you wanted to talk about the 1920s because uh, <laughs> a little before that, there was a very popular type of sporting event around the world. Do you guys know what it was? Boxing. Uh, the air, air balloon traveling around the worlding in 80 dazers. <laughs> dirigibles. Yeah, dirigible uh, racing. Yeah. Those might be true, but what I'm thinking of is six-day racing. That's a lot of days. This is a type of track cycling. <laughs> uh, why, wait, why was, there, why was there air quotes around track cycling just then? Right, you, you said what, it like it's not real track cycling. Sorry. I was leaving a pause for you guys to groan at me trying to teach you about cycling. <laughs> oh, oh, no, okay. I wasn't fair, groaning. Fair. Lucy is almost old enough to be on her first bicycle, so she's just like the athletes oh, you love. There we go. Yeah. Uh, Six-day races started in Britain and spread to, spread to many regions around the world and were brought to their modern style in the United States, but are now mainly a European event. Initially, individuals competed alone, 
the winner being the individual completed the most laps. However, the format was changed to allow teams, usually of two riders each, uh, one racing while the other ra- uh, rested. On the uh, handlebars or where? In the little basket in the front where they put the baguette? No, like you'd, you'd trade the bike between the two of you and one of you would go sleep in a cot while the other one was racing. Okay, okay. Because see, guys, the thing about the six-day race is that it's six days long. Ah, uh, how many like, nights? Yeah, all six. Six full 24-hour periods. So six days, seven nights, six days, six nights. What are we rocking here? Yeah, when are we checking out? When's checkout? Six 24-hour periods. Okay. So if it's 9 a.m. on day one when you start, it's uh, 9 a.m. on day seven when you're finished. So six days, six nights with yeah. a little bit of morning, you know? A little bit of morning. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could start it at midnight, too. I mean, that's... that's oh, yeah. That's, that's, uh, that you're, then you might be rocking seven nights, right? I yeah. like ending with breakfast. I think that's a good idea. That's a good way to go. Everyone can go to Denny's, have a nice big breakfast, talk about their little right. bicycle fun. Either way, <laughs> it's just a load of fun. You just hop on your bike, you do a quick 144-hour race, and whoever goes the farthest wins. Well, it's it's 72 hours per person, right? Well, right. Remember, that that was the, the wimpy addition that they made later on. Got <laughs> they it. They changed the format to have teams of two. Initially, it's just a dude. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Just a dude for, for 144 straight hours? They'd pass out. Uh, yeah, well, they... I, I imagine they had to work in some sort of breaks here and there, but that's not entirely crazy. They still have the Race Across America guys, in which case they take like a few stops to sleep for like three hours. But other than that, they just go. Right. But what's the longest a human being has ever gone without sleeping? It feels like this would be hitting that upper limit. Yeah. I don't think you can go more than like 10 days. I feel like it's 10 days, six if you're bicycling the whole time. (laughs) Uh, Well, hang on. Let's let's keep reading here, folks. Okay. Uh, I mean, let me keep telling you the things that I personally have remembered about six-day races. <laughs> uh, the event did not become popular until 1891 here in America, when the six days of New York were held in New York's Madison Square Gardens. Initially, these races were contests of raw endurance, with a single rider completing as many laps as possible. At first, the races were less than 24 hours a day. At first, riders slept at night and were free to join in the morning when they chose. So... Hope your alarm clock works. Uh, uh, Faster riders would start later than the slower ones who would sacrifice sleep to make up for a lack of pace. That said, if you lost one because you slept too much, you'd be hearing about the tortoise and the hare pretty much nonstop for the rest of your life. Oh, Oh, God. I can't imagine. That would be terrible. And it's it's such a lie to, like, telling that story to kids is such a lie. Oh, completely agree. The hare always wins. You have to admit, Phil, in the context of the six-day race where you sleep at night and start in the morning whenever, it's actually very apt. (laughs) Oh, sure. This is the one circumstance where that's a a totally reasonable description of the race. But you know what? When reading The Tortoise and the Hare the other day, there's something I realized. is The Tortoise and the Hare is a story they teach us to keep the working class down because they're saying if you just gut it out for long enough, that you're going to be able to catch up to all these other people with advantages. You know what? I call bullshit on the tortoise and the hare. Yeah, the no, American dream doesn't exist. You're absolutely right. Get this. The most important thing in a foot race is not determination. It's speed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Ugh. Crazy. Uh, all right. Anyway, but quickly, writers began competing 24 hours a day, limited only by their ability to stay awake. Many employed seconds, as in boxing, to keep them going. The seconds, known by their French name, sonneuse, uh, were said to have used doping to keep their riders circling the track. Riders became desperately tired. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle said, the wear and tear upon their nerves and their muscles and the loss of sleep make them, and this is, this is boxed, peevish and fretful. Uh, but it's in the brackets, so uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, if their desires are not met uh, with on the moment, they break forth with a stream of abuse. Nothing pleases them. These outbreaks do not trouble the trainers with experience, for they understand the condition the men are in. So quick, quick check back to 1891. If you were to say, ride your bike for 24 hours a day for about five days, the reporters would note how you would get a little snippy with them. Sure. <laughs> You'd probably be tired and cranky. There wouldn't be a whole like, wow, we really let everything go. Because my God, it was just like, listen to these guys thinking that riding their bike for five days entitles them to be rude. Uh, the condition included delusions and hallucinations. Oh, God. Writers wobbled and fell, but they were often well-paid, especially since more people came to watch as their condition worsened. Of course, that's why it's <laughs> fun! It's, a, it's like the, I watch NASCAR for the crashes, I watch six-day races uh, for the people near death. Yeah, just woozy, uneasy bike riding. <laughs> yeah. Promoters in New York paid Teddy Hale $5,000 when he won in 1896, and he won, quote, like a ghost, his face white as a corpse, his eyes no longer vis visible because they'd retreated into his skull. Oh, God. That's got to make it hard to bike. Yeah. The New York Times said in 1897, it is a fine thing that a man astride two whales can, in a six-day race, distance a hound, horse, or a locomotive. It confirms the assumption no longer much contested, that the human anima animal is superior to the other animals. But this undisputed thing is being said in too solemn and painful way at Madison Square Gardens, an athletic context in which participants, quote, go queer in their heads and strain their powers until their faces become hideous with the tortures that rack them is not a sport. It is brutality. Days and weeks of recuperation will be needed to put the garden racers in condition. And it is likely that some of them will never recover from the strain. Typical li liberal fake news. <laughs> this sort of claptrap about how we need to protect our athletes and that six days is too long to race. Uh, but, I mean, it's a, they, they could use a union. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, they have one now. And guess oh, what? They don't, they don't do this anymore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Is it called the the ding ding? I like to ride my bicycle union. No, they do still have six day races, but I'm pretty sure they've they've shifted to the twelve hour shifts and and teams of two. Still a pretty long work day. Also, yeah. the people train better now too. I feel like people know how to scientifically train better now than. Yeah, yeah, back then it was like Boxcar Joe was doing it to make money, you know? Well, that's the real shame is I don't know if we're going to know what the real record is because they probably won't let anybody ride their bicycle for six days without sleep anymore. Things have really changed. I thought this yeah. was America. We all did, but we were wrong. Uh, and this brings to a close another sports 
throughout history. Brought to you by the History Channel. Soon we're going to have to start telling stories of the future. Joining us now on the podcast is Chicago sports superfan Buck Knightley. Hey, guys, thank you for having me. Hey, Buck, how are you? Ah, it's so good to be on this podcast. I'm such a huge sports fan, so naturally we're listening to this podcast all the time. Me and my wife, Deborah, are just, we, we listen to it and we... You know, we we laugh sometimes, but really we're we're in it for the news and the education. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And it must be a hard time for you now as a sports fan because we're starved for sports. You got to be starved for sports. Oh, so hard. Yeah, that's why I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm watching a lot of a lot of classic sports. And uh, thankfully, this wonderful documentary. I'm sure you you probably heard of it because you're pretty media savvy. The Last Dance. Yes. Uh, the, uh, is is now on and we've oh i'll tell you we've been gobbling it right up yeah it's been it's been it's been a fascinating documentary it's been it's been exactly what the sports uh fan community has needed uh, oh, frankly. Yeah. Well, i mean and we've been a, a lot of attention with i mean there's it's filling a void right now so oh yeah i mean we've been we've been we've been cramming this in our face like a, like it's a bunch of bratwurst you know <laughs> just enjoying the heck out of it and you know what? We're so excited when we finally get to the finale and see that beautiful dance that they've been uh, hyping up for the for all the episodes so far. All oh, that's going to be a really magic moment. It's just so much buildup. Uh, 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 oh wait, uh, Buck. Yeah. By dance, you mean the 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 winning of the the sixth and final championship? Oh no, no, I'm talking about this big, beautiful likely MGM style dance number that I know that they've been building up to this whole time. You know, you, you really, you feel it, uh, with every, every time they're celebrating and you're, Oh, is that person dancing? Oh no, they're just jumping up and down, you know, but we, I know, I know if this whole thing is about this dance, that it's going to be something real special. We're going to remember it for the rest of our lives. You know, I, I got to tell you, Buck, I, I've watched the whole documentary there. There's eight episodes and, in the eighth episode, there, there's no there's no dance. There's no show-stopping number. There's, I mean, it's just they win the championship, and we kind of discuss the legacy of the team and the cultural impact of the team and uh, Michael Jordan. But there's no there's no dance. Oh, you know what? Yeah, I bet I know why they did that. Because you know, as soon as episode nine hits, and you they and it starts, I can just imagine it. The credits come down, and you just hear a disembodied voice go. Five, six, seven, eight, and then the lights all come up, <laughs> and everybody's dancing. Oh, it's gonna be wonderful! So the the lights go down like the classic badass Bulls intro that they. Oh use. yeah, it'll be going da 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 da, and every time they say "Hey," someone will do a little backflip or something. Oh, it's gonna be such a great dance. You yeah. know, I don't I don't want to step on your fun here, Buck, but there there's not going to be in in episode nine. This was an eight episode documentary there's no episode nine you know i thought it. you know i think it's i have to say first of all you're wrong about that because there hasn't <laughs> been a dance yet <laughs> second of all i thought it was really interesting the way that they tell this wonderful dance documentary is through the eyes of michael jordan <laughs> you know you know brave it's, storytelling it's kind of like uh like a show on the fx network you think you're watching one thing and then bam you're watching another thing you know 
I, I do think that uh, that I certainly have enjoyed this more than other dance documentaries, and I wonder if the Michael Jordan perspective is what was missing in the past. Oh, yeah. I have to say, me and my wife, uh, Deborah, we're not even that big of a fan of dance. Like, we, we tried <laughs> to watch So I Think You Could Dance once, and it was really it was a little slow for us. But we knew if they were putting so much money behind a documentary that was about dance that it would be something a little, even non-dance fans are going to love this one. Well, I, I can tell you, Buck, and, and maybe you remember this, but maybe in the first half of the documentary, oh, yeah. there are a couple of Super Bowl st- uh, shuffle style there are, music oh, videos about well, the Bulls. They're teasing us. Right. That's the, but what I'm saying is they, they're singing and they're rapping and they're dancing a bit. The Bulls are. But but that is that is it. I, I'm telling you, that is the the total of dancing in the documentary. You know what I gotta say during those parts, we saw a little dancing and we went, okay, there's dancing here. I see what they're building up to. (laughs) Clearly this isn't the last dance. (laughs) Well, no, it wasn't a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of episodes left. So there's going to be that one big, beautiful last (laughs) dance. And they'll probably reference back to those dances. You know, they'll do like some setups and payoffs. Right. So like maybe they'll do like a little, yeah, they'll have some of the costuming, and maybe a Spud Webb will come in, and he'll spin a little plate on his finger when he dances. And uh, Dennis Rodman, but young Dennis Rodman will dance with old Dennis Rodman. Oh, that's going to be a special moment. You know, hey, CGI Buck. has gotten better these days. Hey, Buck? Yeah. Are, are you familiar with metaphor? With metaphor, yeah. It's uh, when you say uh, uh, simile is the like or as one. Yeah, and that metaphor is the one where you just say like these donuts are gold, right? So yeah. in, in this case, I think the t- the documentary is called "The Last Dance," and in this case, the last dance dance is just a a metaphor for their season. You know, they're saying like uh, like that big, you know, your senior prom, your last dance, and for them, it was kind of like their senior prom because it was their final season together. You know, as that iteration of the Bulls. God, okay, now I think I understand. So in the last episode, all of the Bulls are going to come together and have a big prom. Nope. So it's going to be like no, all no, of them doing their no. own individual dances. See, I kind of like that. You know, I wasn't hot on So I Think You Can Dance, but yeah. now that I've got all of this context see, about see all I... of their victories, it'll make every <laughs> dance feel a little more special, you know? But uh, what I did there was try to use a simile to explain a metaphor, and it, it really backfired. <laughs> you really you really shouldn't have brought up the prom there, Joel. No, 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 yeah. No, no, Buck, uh, there's there's no dance. I mean, the, the dance in this case is not literal. It's a figurative dance. Coach the season Phil Jackson. of basketball. Yeah. Is, is what they're focused on. That is the dance. Coach Phil Jackson uh, said at the beginning of the season, this is our last dance. He would have themes for his team. He's a very interesting coach. And so that was his theme this year. The theme was last dance. I got a, I got a question for you, Joel and Jordan. Are, are you God-fearing men? <laughs> I mean, yes, I am, yeah. Joel, are I you mean, a God-fearing man? I'm an atheist, but I mean, if there is one, I'd be scared. Sure, sure. So, have you have you really thought about faith? You know, <laughs> having <laughs> no. faith that there's going to be something greater. Uh, oh, sure, yeah, sure, maybe yeah. even beyond our knowledge. Sure, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely a very. I have person. faith that there will be another episode of The Last <laughs> Dance 
and it's going to have the greatest <laughs> musical number that the world has ever seen, possibly with Michael Jordan, possibly just about the life of Michael Jordan. But when that happens, you know, I'll be back on this podcast and I'll say, what do you, what do you think about God now? <laughs> Well, thank you. You know what, Buck? I, you know what? I'm with you, bud. I really hope yeah. we see that. I, now I want to see an episode nine. No, oh, thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate it. And let's, let's go bulls and let's go dance. All right. Thank you, Buck. Thank you. And now it's time for another wide world of weird sports. Oh, it's wide world sports time. Everybody loves wide world sports. Wide world of weird sports. What do we got this week? This week's Wide World Weird Sports, 19 Outrageous Dennis Rodman Stories, Part 1. Ooh, this is perfect. And Dennis Rodman, you know, that one guy that both uh, Bad Boys and uh, and Jordan Era both can can enjoy. Oh, yeah. Well, this is uh, a Vulture article that was uh, written very recently, April 26, 2020. It's about the last dance where they're kind of covering some of their moments, uh, filling in a little bit of the detail the last dance might not have covered. Um, But man, interesting dude. So I'm skipping the intro. I'm going to go right into it. Let's hear it. Uh, And as part one, there might be up to three parts. 19 is a lot to cover. I'm going to talk so much. It's five. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Number one, he was a late bloomer. So the documentary includes mention of Rodman's background, but it's worth going over in full. A sub six foot high high schooler who grew up in poverty, he went unrecruited by college programs. And after graduation, worked a series of odd jobs, most notably as a janitor at Dallas Fort Worth Airport, where he was fired for stealing watches on a dare. But then he got his big break, a late growth spurt, shot him up to six feet, eight inches. When he graduated high school, he was sub six feet. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I don't know that that's an outrageous story at all. <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, in the documentary, they talk about it happened to Scottie Pippen, too. In wow. high, school, yeah. he was, high school, he was a guard. And then all of a sudden, in, in college, he like grew up to like 6'11". He was like 6'5", or something. And then he just had a growth spurt in college. Do you think that they wished upon a star? Absolutely. Drank a lot of milk and ate their vegetables. Because it doesn't doesn't matter where you are. Yeah. Uh, Number two, he began cross-dressing as a child. Oh, Uh, did not know that. Yeah, Rodman's playing with gender performance raised plenty of eyebrows in the 90s. But as he wrote in his memoir, Bad as I Wanna Be, it was something he'd done as a young boy growing up in a largely female environment. Quoted Rodman, I don't remember the first time I decided to do as an adult. It was more of a gradual thing where it progressed from earrings and fingernails to halter tights or halter tops and tight leather shorts. Hmm. For Rodman, wearing women's clothing was about self-expression. When I cross-dress now, it's just another way to show all sides of Dennis Rodman. I'm giving you the whole package. I'm becoming an all-purpose person. Uh, once again, hey, it's 2020. I don't know that that's outrageous. <laughs> no, but I mean, it was yeah. in the 90s. That's I remember right. that. But if these are the most outrageous Rodman stories, like you remember when Kurt Cobain wore the wedding dress to the VMAs and it like the world exploded. Yeah. Yeah. People, people were really stuck on some stuff back then. Yeah. The nineties were weird. Uh, Number three, early in his NBA career, he would drive into downtown Detroit 
and hand $100 bills to the homeless. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they could use it. That's true. That's true. Uh, there are a lot. He said, there are a lot of people out there who are more worthy of this money. Uh, you can't help everybody, but you can help some people. I make millions now. What's 250 bucks? That's really sweet. I really like yeah. that. I and like Detroit that. is a rough place to be a homeless person. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, cold. Yeah. Number four, he once took off his shoes and read a magazine on the bench. By the um, end of his yeah, by the end of his time in Detroit, Rodman was so mentally checked out. Michael Wilbon wrote after one game, it looked like he was sitting on a Lido deck of a cruise ship waiting for a cabin steward to deliver a gin and juice. As God is my witness, Dennis Rodman was reading a magazine during the game like he was at B. Dalton's. <laughs> wow. Nice reference. I yeah, love is, it. What is B. Dalton's? It was a bookstore. It used to be a mall bookstore. Yeah. <laughs> That's a 90s throwback. Yeah. Dalton's, yeah. Wow. Way to go, Michael Wilbon. <laughs> yeah, he really made that uh, the imagery come to life in his writing. Of the less annoying afternoon shouty show on ESPN. <laughs> uh, number five, his breakdown at the Pistons Stadium kickstarted his reinvention. So the last dance deals briefly with the 1993 incident where Rodman showed up at the Palace of Auburn Hills with a rifle in his car, having fallen into despair over a failed marriage and the departure of his beloved coach, Chuck Daly. Yeah. As, as he wrote in his book, rather than harm himself, Rodman decided that night to utterly remake his life. I killed the Dennis Rodman that I tried to conform and what everyone else wanted him to be. He just had to be him, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, good, good for him. I'm glad that that sad episode of his life turned out positively. Yeah. I like him more and more as I read these. Oh, yeah. No, he's great. He's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number six, his credits. He credits legendary sideline reporter Craig Sager to saving his life. Wow, really? Both men confirmed that a despondent Rodman once talked out of suicide by Sager, who tracked him down at a strip club to give him a heart to heart. Sager told Sports Illustrated he was going to do it. I told him how stupid that would be. After Sager's death in 2016, Rodman thanked him on Twitter for saving my life when I was in dire need of help. Boy, today's yeah, sideline reporters are, are really fine. Oh, yeah. I, I was worried it was going to be like, yeah, it was in the third quarter of a game. He was wearing a green plaid suit doing the, <laughs> doing the interview with me, and I realized I, I didn't want to go on anymore. Right. <laughs> it had to me out of it. I thought it was going to be like, and then Dennis Rodman started choking on the sideline. Yeah, that, that, that feels left. more right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Craig said Heimlich Maneuver, performed CPR. Yeah. Number seven, he was once late to a stadium opening because he was dying his hair. Rodman's oh. new lease on life symbolized by his experiments with eye-popping hairstyles. His first attempt came the same day as the opening of the San Antonio's Alamo Dome, where Rodman arrived 30 minutes behind, scheduling uh, sporting a platinum blonde look. The bleach, the damn bleach job took too long. He recalled. <laughs> yeah. Once again, this really, I, I think this article needed an editor and to be the 15 most outrageous Rodman stories. That's totally fair. Well, the last one of part one, number eight, in a three-week span in late 1993, Rodman had three separate games in which he grabbed over 24 rebounds but scored zero points. Holy shit! 
Yeah. That's that's actually fucking outrageous and interesting. That that's is nuts. fucking awesome. So he had 24 rebounds in each game? Yeah. Fuck yeah. And zero points in each no, game. No, no, quick question. How many shots did he take? Uh, he So he put up a 0-28-3 stat line. Does that say anything? No, that's... <laughs> three assists. Yeah. <laughs> zero, po- zero points, 28 you, rebounds. Oh. Three Here we go. Grab, how do you grab 28 rebounds and only have three assists? Oh, as was described by one sports reporter, uh, it was a relentless kamikaze, no holds barred pursuit of missed shots. Wow. So it sounds like he was shooting. He just could not get it in the, that dang basket. Kind of like when I shoot. Oh, basket's yeah. too small. Ball's too big. And, and by the way, I mean, 6'8 is not especially tall for the NBA. <laughs> It's That's up fair. there, but it's not like a center. 24 rebounds in three straight games. Crazy, right? Right? And that brings it into another wide world of weird sports. Oh, when I hear that someone can be paid millions of dollars for missing all the shots, it makes me want to play basketball. This is a podcast town. This brings to a close another sports. 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 Podcast. But before we go, we're going to bring back... Uh, Super fan Buck Knightley to give you our contact information. Yeah, thank you for having me back. I'm uh, here to deliver the contact information. Very excited about it. Okay, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash sports number three podcast. That's facebook.com slash sports number three podcast. Oh, man, I love going on Facebook and just sharing articles that I like the headline to without clicking into them. Oh, man, sometimes Deborah hits that like button. It makes me feel great. You can find us on Twitter by going to twitter.com slash sports number three podcast. That's twitter.com slash sports number three podcast. Same here. Uh, sometimes on Twitter, I'll just retweet every single thing that uh, that uh, has hashtag dance, you know, just in preparation. <laughs> <laughs> or you can find all of our back episodes at anchor.fm slash sports number three podcast. That's anchor.fm slash sports number three podcast. So many great podcasts on Anchor. Sports Number Three podcast is my favorite, but I'm also listening to a whole lot of podcasts about the Bulls and dance and the probability of the Bulls dancing. It's great. (laughs) Thank you, Buck. You're welcome. Hey, guys. Joel. Joel. What if we did a six-day podcast? Bye, Bye, Joel. Bye, Joel.